So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. I apologize for the sniffling. Uh, got myself a nasty head cold this week. Uh, and I should note uh, that uh, next week, yes, the 24th, right? Uh, and then the four weeks in December, or four of the Sundays in December, we'll be departing from the Roman series to come back to it. Uh, for, well, for uh, Thanksgiving next week, and then for the Christmas season sermons related to, to the, this time of year. So uh, hear the word of the Lord that uh, Paul wrote to the Church of Rome and to us. Continuing that uh, uh, section uh, where Paul is hammering home the reality of sin, both for Gentiles and for Jews. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Hear the word of the Lord. We pray his blessing upon it, that we may hear it, understand it, meditate upon it, and obey it. Beloved, we all dislike situations where the fix is in. We all recognize that an Olympic judge who has taken a kickback in order to render a prearranged ruling, say, in the couple's ice skating competition, that such a judge is a crooked and ought to be ousted. If you've, ever, if you've watched the Olympics over the years, you will have seen instances where that was the case. Uh, we all realize that a judge in the criminal or civil sphere who is influenced by the wealth or political or familial connections of a defendant is, in, is unfit for his or her service to the community. The baseball umpire who tells us that balls and strikes are whatever he says they are is corrupt. So also is a former US Supreme Court Chief Justice who once uttered that the Constitution was whatever he said it was. And that is a statement that a Chief Justice once wrote. If this is true in the mundane realms of sports or law, beloved, what shall we say about God? Is God trustworthy? Or does he grade on the curve? Can God be bought? Is he corrupt when it comes to his assessment of our lives? May it never be. Or as we might say, God forbid. God is holy, righteous, and good. And he just is the standard of what is just. It's not as if there were a standard of justice outside of God to which he himself must conform. Paul, in our text this morning, reminds us that God is just 
and his eternal evaluation of each one of us on the last day will be impartial. Now, he reveals this to us in terms of the form of the passage we read in a literary technique called a chiasm. A chiasm just comes from the, the Greek letter chi, which is an X. That's a, so you see the outer verses repeat each other and successively and so on. So what you have here is a literary Russian nesting doll. Those of you gals who know what a nesting doll is, tell your husband so he understands my illustration. A Russian, literary Russian nesting doll with one doll nestled or settled inside another. That's how what you see is Paul says, uh, uh, those seeking good, will, this will happen at the beginning. And then he says, those seeking good, will, this will happen at the end. And then in the middle, you'll see he discusses the fate of the unsaved, that is, the wicked. And that brings us to our first point, that God will judge according to works. It's important that we understand that God is a just judge, that he cannot be bought, that he is not crooked, that he's not prejudiced, that he embodies in himself, if I can use that word, not really completely appropriate because he doesn't have a body except for the Son of God. Paul continues uh, in this text to bring the truth of God's impending judgment upon his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh in our text for this morning. You see, beloved, Paul's fellow Jews thought God would exercise judgment on unbelieved, the unbelieving Gentile world before he ever exercised it on them, if he ever would exercise it on them. But Paul points out that God will judge both his own people and those outside the covenant people of God, and he will judge according to righteousness. The judge of all the earth will judge rightly according to truth, because he is truth, and because he has brought forth this world and upholds it in its continued existence. That is, we don't exist by ourselves. We are not self-sufficient, beloved. It may appear that way, that things just are the way they are. But in fact, things are, are the way they are because God upholds us. He continues to uh, uphold us in our existence. God will judge according to strict justice. Indeed, the strictest kind of justice there is or ever could be. God will judge us all according to our works. Isn't that what Proverbs said that we read earlier? Mm -hmm. yeah. He will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. Seems pretty straightforward. But it makes all sorts of people very uncomfortable. Perhaps this makes you very uncomfortable. It certainly makes me very uncomfortable. A person's genealogical pedigree 
will not help him when he comes to stand before a holy God. In other words, uh, 23andMe and Ancestry don't have uh, a, a test for determining whether you will pass the test with God in the last day. A person's bank account will not enable him to influence God's assessment. A person's role in this life, say as a king or queen, as an example, will not influence God's eternal evaluation one way or another simply because one was a king or queen and ruled with absolute power and authority in one's land and place. The eternal judgment at the end of the day will be the ultimate meritocracy. Meritocracy. That's the way our country should work. That is, in other words, if you work hard, you reap the benefits. In other words, God doesn't judge on the curve. He will judge with strict justice, and Paul says he will judge us according to our works. And that is... Scary. It ought to be, because we know we are sinners, right? One of the interesting things, if you read the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all have sections where uh, the prophet, uh, God is speaking through the prophet to departed kings who are in uh, the grave. And when they go into the grave, they are equal with every other person in the grave. And it's very interesting as you read those sections of those prophets, uh, how they talk about, uh, you know, uh, someone who had been pompous and, and had great power is brought down low in the grave. This is true. The grave is the great leveler. What makes us all nervous, beloved, is the big fact that we are all sinners as fallen creatures and that we cannot please God because we are sinners. We are in a helpless and hopeless bind. God will hold us to the highest possible standard of goodness and righteousness and justice, and we cannot even think of satisfying such a high divine standard. We are in this pickle because of the disobedience of our first father, Adam. You may remember, and we talked about this in Sunday school, that God offered Adam a life of consummate, joyful fellowship with him if he would not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know our first parents did eat from the tree, and we have all suffered the consequences of guilt and corruption ever since. We come into this world as sinners and we pile on our own personal sin on top of all this. So we, we get nervous because we know that we, cannot, we will not pass such a strict test. But we also are nervous because there appears to be a contradiction in Paul's teaching within this very letter. He's just said here that uh, we will all be judged by works. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and he says that no one will be justified by works. Specifically, works of the law. So what gives? 
Can one be justified or found acceptable in the sight of a holy God at the judgment at the end of the age? And even before that, based upon works? While it looks like there may be a contradiction here, there really isn't. I will explain how this is the case, or rather I will explain how it is not the case that there is a contradiction as we proceed. For now, let it be known that we all will be judged according to works at the last judgment, and that none of us will meet with acceptance in and of ourselves and our own works. Let it also be known that God does not wink at our sin, nor does he ignore his own character or holy nature when he justifies us by faith. And that brings us to the second point. God will reward the righteous. And again, because of the form of the, the text, we're looking at verses 7 and 10. Twice Paul spells out the fact that God will reward those who are righteous on the last day. Specifically, he says that God will reward those who demonstrate perseverance in well-doing. Well, what is well-doing? That is, those who seek honor and glory and immortality. Those he will reward with eternal life. So we see here that those who are rewarded with eternal life are those who display in their lives perseverance, well-doing, seeking honor and glory and immortality. Further, Paul notes that those who do good will be rewarded with glory and honor and peace. Now, these are not two different groups of people, but two ways of saying the same thing. And note, too, beloved, that th this glory and honor and immortality is not a self-seeking form of glory and honor and immortality. So it cannot be uh, glory of the self and, and honor of the self and the immortality of the self per se. It is, that is, these folks who will be rewarded with eternal life are those who seek the honor and the glory of God and who recognize his immortality. That is, he is God and we are not. Now, there once was a time where obedience to God's law could have happened, could have come to pass in God's good creation. There was a time where this description of who will be rewarded could have happened when God commanded Adam and Eve to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our first parents could have obeyed God. Understand that. Prior to the fall, it was not impossible, that is, it was possible for our first parents to be obedient. They, in fact, weren't, but it's not because they could not be. They were made with the capacity to personally, fully, exactly, and entirely obey God. Understand that. That's before the fall. Now, the warning of impending death dealing, doom, contained on its flip side, that is, the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This warning contained on its flip side the promise of everlasting life with full enjoyment of sweet fellowship with God. Note that what Adam and Eve disobeyed God, remember what happens, 
they are put out of the garden never to never in this life to return they were put out of the garden of divine fellowship to live east of eden so even we have a movie by that name right east of eden that expression means to be put out of god's presence to be alienated from him and we find ourselves there as well east of Eden, when we come into this world, talking about ourselves in our natural state. With Adam's disobedience, we find ourselves guilty of his sin and corrupted by a sinful nature in which we are deprived of the holiness with which our first parents were created. Adam and Eve were created in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10. Look at those passages and see that Paul tells us that Christians are being renewed in those areas. Well, to be renewed, you have to have had it at one time. Our first parents did, and yet they threw it all away. By nature now, we are out of fellowship with God. And this has disastrous consequences for our relationship, not only to God, but with one another and to the rest of God's creation. Every aspect of our human nature, every aspect of who we are as human beings is corrupted by the fall. Our intellect, the way we think, our emotions, and our wills. If that's the case, how can we possibly be found acceptable in God's eyes at the judgment at the end of the age, given this mess we are in? Is Paul mocking us? Not at all. Not really. Paul is being real. He is being truthful. He is being open with us about how God's world works, both now and at the end of the age. It is true that those who seek glory and honor and immortality, those who do good, will be granted eternal life. But who fits that bill? That brings us to our third point. God will punish the self-seeking who do evil, verses 8 and 9, in the very middle of the chiastic structure, as we like to say in uh, seminary. Perhaps, uh, beloved, we, are more we more readily relate to what Paul says about those whose reward will be punishment. Paul reminds us that God will judge us without partiality. He cannot be bought off. He cannot be illegitimately influenced to throw a decision in the wrong direction so that it is not according to truth. God will judge evildoers, wicked men and women, boys and girls, will get their divine comeuppance. That's what God's word tells us. Not a very popular doctrine, by the way, but it's nevertheless true. We will get our comeuppance. For those who look out for number one, I was going to say numero uno, those who look out for number one, and of course, in the mind of the sinful creature, he or she is, of course, number one. 
Paul tells us that God has in store for such people wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. What kind of person earns this reward, you may ask? Paul does not hesitate to describe such people. They are self-seeking. They do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. They are those who do evil. They are those who are involved in the kinds of sin that he described at the end of chapter 1, that wonderful list of sins that we find there. And yes, I'm using the word wonderful in an ironic sense. No one, beloved, has ever lived in a world not created by God and not surrounded by his communication to them in both nature, providential history, and in salvation history and in the pages of Scripture. That's what makes sin so much worse. It's not sin done in ignorance. It's not sin done in a vacuum. It's not sin done in a void. It's sin done in the face of God. Those who are described here by Paul are not ignorant innocents. In our natural condition, babies, children, teens, adults, and the elderly are under God's wrath and curse and are guilty of Adam's sin and have become indelibly stained with a fallen and corrupt nature in which we can never do anything, never, beloved, do anything that pleases God in the ultimate and eternal sense in which we are discussing things here. Yes, it's true, fallen sinners can often live lives of civic or mundane goodness. Yes, sometimes Christians are put to shame by unbelievers. People are not as bad, usually, as they could be. Thankfully, we do not always live in a state of endless chaos and wickedness, although in the last hundred years or so, we have come close, it seems. None of us in our fallen state can please God so that we, uh, so that we can pass the smell test at the, end, uh, at the judgment at the end of the age. In fact, Paul says that we get the wages of sin, of our sin. Paul's reference to the Jew first and then the Gentile is not a suggestion that Jews are somehow superior to Gentiles or vice versa. Paul is simply reminding his Jewish readers and listeners that as the gospel comes first to the Jews as God's special people, and then it goes out into all the world, so also divine judgment is first visited upon the household of God and then the general unbelieving population. Merely being ethnically Jewish will not save anyone in the Old Testament days. Today, being a member of a church in and of itself apart from consideration of faith in Christ, will not save anyone either. Being a member of the Old Covenant or the New Covenant Church was and is an obligation for the believer, but by itself it does not save. That is, you can be uh, in the visible church, as we call it, and not be saved. So we see that those who do evil only have wrath and fury, tribulation and distress to look forward to. If this is the case, 
how can anyone ever pass the judgment of a holy and righteous and good God? And that brings us to our fourth and final point. How is it that anyone could ever meet with God's satisfaction and pleasure? Well, I had to stop and make myself say satisfaction and pleasure and not dissatisfaction and displeasure. But how is it that we as a sinful people can dwell in the midst of a, a holy God? Well, point four, God takes the punishment on himself. That's how. Paul tells us what remedy God has put in place to rescue guilty and corrupt fallen sinners. And Peter shares the same view, the Apostle Peter. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Adam plunged us all into sin and misery by his one act of disobedience. With that reality, we are all more than well enough acquainted, aren't we? Being fallen creatures as we are. But how can Paul say that those who do good will receive eternal life and those who do evil will receive wrath when in reality there is only one group since the fall? There is only the wicked. So who is he talking about? Who, who will be rewarded for being obedient and doing good? Had Adam been obedient to God in the Garden of Eden, he and Eve and his posterity would have achieved what we like to call confirmed righteousness. In other words, they couldn't, he, he and she could not lose it. Had they been obedient, Adam would have passed the probation and entered into the glorious state of blessed, uninterrupted fellowship with God. With the fall of our first parents, there was only one remedy. One remedy. God has not permanently slammed the door on us. We can still enter into the glorious state of continuous fellowship with the triune God. But the, now the only way we can pass under the flaming and swaying sword in the cherubim, and you may remember that God placed the flaming sword, which flow, flies every which way, and, and the cherubim at the gate of entrance to the Garden of Eden to prevent Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden. But now the only way we can pass under the flaming and swaying sword in the cherubim at the entrance into the garden of God is by way of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, by living a perfectly holy life, has completely satisfied God's law for us. Jesus, by dying on the cross, took upon himself the wrath and fury, tribulation and distress that should fall on us. Or to go back to the, 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 the image of the, the flaming sword and the cherubim, Christ has gone under the sword to gain us entry into the new Eden. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was the righteous one who died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Another way to think about what Jesus has done for us is that he has made it possible for us to, to pass the smell test at the end of the age. 
Now, we can do that not because we are wholly righteous in ourselves. Beloved, if we are clothed in the royal garments of King Jesus, then we will sustain the Father's judgment. When the Father looks at us, he sees us in his Son. God, you see, does not wink at our sin. Not at all. Sin's deserved punishment has been exhausted on Christ for you and me. And that should be cause for thankfulness every minute of every day from now into eternity. What's more, when we come to Christ by faith, think of this, when we come to Christ by faith, we don't find ourselves back in the garden with Adam, where Adam and Eve found themselves at creation. There are many Christians who think that's what being saved is, is returning to the garden. No, not at all. Upon coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being united to him, we are transplanted into the realm where Adam would have been transferred had he been obedient. We are now beyond probation in the ultimate eternal sense. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if are you, you are united to him by faith, if by grace you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are beyond probation in terms of your relationship with God. We are not on continual probation with God the Father once we close with God the Son. And that's an old expression that the Puritans use, to close with Christ. That is, to come to faith in Christ, to grab the hem of his garment, to Grab a hold of him as your Lord and Savior to seek refuge in him, to find shelter under the shadow of his wings. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are joined to him who has obeyed the Father and met the stipulations of the covenant of works or the covenant of life as it is sometimes called. That covenant that Adam had with God but failed to keep. Ever since the fall, the way back to eternal fellowship with God the Father is by way of God the Son through the ministry of God the Spirit. You see, beloved, the only way back into God's favor was for God himself to take our punishment upon himself. Take some time to meditate upon that fact. If you want a little Old Testament help this afternoon, read Genesis 15. And then ask yourself the question, what is God doing passing between the animal parts? Meditate upon that. In conclusion, God is not a crooked judge. He has not and he cannot be bribed, and that's good. But for sinners like you and me, that's also bad news. How can we who are sinners stand in the presence of a holy God? The short answer is we can't. But God has provided a way to enter into joyous fellowship with him, and that is through faith in the one and only God-man, Jesus Christ. Simply put, you trust Jesus to save you from God the Father's wrath, and you will find yourself able to pass the judgment at the end of the age. And you can be very confident of that thing here and now. 
as well as there and then. God is and always will be an impartial judge. Paul says elsewhere in Romans that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's what we're talking about. How is it that God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? By taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. That's how it happens. God is and always will be an impartial judge, and you can bet on that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that your spirit would enable us to meditate upon this word. Yes, to recognize that there is bad news, but there is essentially good news. That while we have been born in sin, we have been born in Adam by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now one with Christ who has passed through death and come out the other end by resurrection life. We pray that we would meditate upon these truths throughout the day and indeed in the coming days and weeks ahead. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.